Luke 4. Let's go. I'm going to pray, and we will uh, begin in our, our continuing study of the Gospel of Luke. God in heaven, here we are before you with joy in our hearts to be able to see Jesus and to see the beginning of his public ministry. Having come out of the testing in the desert, refined for our sake and our righteousness, now he begins to bring the good news to all who would hear him. Thank you, God, that we can have access to this through your inspired word. Please, Lord, let none of this fall to the ground, but that we would treasure it all and be excited to put it all into practice. Thank you, God, for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Luke 4. Again, we, we had looked last time at Jesus' baptism and then his testing in the desert. That seems to be the case. Usually, uh, temptation does come at a, at a great pace right after our baptism. And now Jesus, after that uh, overcoming of the temptation of Satan, enters into the region of Galilee. He was way down by the Dead Sea and it, south, just the south part of, of Israel, and then makes his new ministry stop much further north, all the way up the, the Jordan to the Sea of Galilee. And now, if, if the Sea of Galilee looks like a, a clock as a, as a circle, picture somewhere around uh, 9 to 11 o'clock on that portion of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus' ministry is based for the bulk of, of the three years where he begins to preach. And so this is where he heads now, to that beautiful portion, really, of the, of the uh, terrain there in the Sea of Gal- on just uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and here's where we pick it up. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. That word news, by the way, is the Greek word fame. It's, it's the word fame by which we get the word fame. And so his fame spreads all over the place. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So this is the honeymoon period of Jesus's ministry. As he begins to preach, all are amazed at what he says, all are amazed at what he can do, and crowds are coming thronging to this great new thing that's coming their way. Well, then he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. Let me stop for a second here. Uh, the, the title of my sermon today is, A True Messiah Demands True Faith. And Jesus begins that right from Jump Street as he begins his public ministry. When we visited Nazareth both times, we were able to see there a reconstruction of a synagogue that was in Nazareth. As a matter of fact, while we were in there, uh, Kirk Valencia grabbed the scroll that was there and you know, kind of helped us to imagine, you know, what it was like as Jesus stood up to take the scroll and began to read from it. No flipping through a Bible, no page numbers, no verse numbers, no chapters, just knowing the words so well, so intimate with the material that as you make your way through that scroll, you're able to find it. And, and so was the experience with the word of God uh, through that uh, period of time. But as Jesus grabbed the scroll, the synagogue would have, have been filled. Everybody 
eager to hear what would have been said. And as he grabbed the scroll and began to read, everybody in the synagogue, as would have been their custom, would have stood up while he read in honor of the word of God. You see that when Ezra reads as well. You see everybody stand when Ezra reads the word of God. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for having sat while I just read these words, but this is the custom then. I'm going to read some more words. You can remain seated. It'll be all right. But unless you somehow feel so moved, then, you know, do as you will. But, but, but here's what's interesting is, as he finds his way through the scroll, everyone's standing. As he reads, everyone remains standing. And then afterwards, when he begins to teach, he then sits down. That would be sweet, by the way. No story. Maybe not like a chair, but like one of those kind of cool, like, you know, like a Frank Sinatra type stool, you know, just kind of sitting, talking, teaching from, from something like that. It's just a thought, if anybody has one of those at home. Try it next week, see how it goes. Well, anyway, here he is. He, he, he reads from the scroll. It's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It seems as though he didn't choose it by the wording of this, but rather that Isaiah was handed to him. And then as he unrolls it, he finds a place in Isaiah that seems to be particularly appropriate for what it is that he wants to announce. And the very first words that come off of his lips are described by one of the scholars, Kenneth Bailey, who wrote Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, as a lightning bolt that lands in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. Now you hear the word anointed and you just think, well, you know, maybe he's got some moisturizer that's going well for him right now. No, that's not the depth of what is being said right here. This is the word Christus. This is the word Messiah that is being dropped before all of them. And everyone who would have appreciated Isaiah and the prophecies of Isaiah in Isaiah 61, from which he is reading, would have understood with clarity that he is now referring this to himself, as, as we'll see in a moment. So Jesus stands up, finds this spot to be able to let everybody know the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But by the way, when we have the word poor, oftentimes, well, this was the case among the Jewish communities at the time, it didn't refer to those who were economically challenged. It often referred to those who were the people of God that forsook worldly ambitions for the sake of God and oftentimes referred to as poor. It didn't, some of them may have actually had, had wealth, some of them may not have wealth. It didn't actually have to do with your net worth. It had to do with the fact that you, you had um, kind of no longer valued the things of the world and now valued the things of the kingdom of God. For example, when on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the idea of poor in spirit, really, that rounds out this idea of Isaiah 61, of bringing the good news, the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Here's what's interesting, is that phrase, to set the oppressed free, doesn't occur in Isaiah 61, 1 or 2, where he's reading. Jesus is doing some live editing at this moment. How is it that he's able to do this? Because he's reading from perhaps a Hebrew scroll or even a Greek scroll, depending on what it is that he had access to. The people likely needed to hear it in Aramaic. If they were not educated, they certainly wouldn't have known Hebrew. Hebrew is pretty much a dead language 
at this point in time. They would have only spoken Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew. Uh, or if they weren't very educated and he was reading from a Greek scroll, then they wouldn't have understood that either. So whether he was reading from the Hebrew or from the Greek, there would have been then a translator right there with him. So as he read a line, he would pause, and then the translator would translate to the congregation, to the synagogue. And in between each of those translations, you were allowed, according to some first century Talmudic, this is like rabbinical, kind of Robert's rules of orders, as you deal with the Bible before a group. So if, if you're to read the Bible, the Holy Scriptures in, in Hebrew, before the synagogue, if you were reading from the law, you know, law that's, you know, Leviticus, Exodus, you know, first five books of the Bible, if you're reading from the law, you could not in any way do some editing. You could only read exactly as it was written and not jump about at all. But if you were reading from the prophets, you were given the latitude as the speaker in the synagogue to go ahead and jump around a bit if it helps to, in a sense, illuminate what it is that you're trying to say. It seems as though that's what Jesus is doing here. He starts in 61. As the translator is speaking, he then jumps over to 58.6 to add and to set the oppressed free. He then comes back to Isaiah 61. Of course, he doesn't have any chapters or verse numbers. Comes back to it and picks up and says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This would have been a passage, a song, a piece of poetry from the lips of the great prophet Isaiah that would have been near and dear to every one of those people in Nazareth's heart. Why? Because in Nazareth was found a community of what you might call like radical Zionist type Jews. Galilee had become, as the, the scriptures call it, Galilee of the Gentiles. That is, non-Jews had begun to really settle in around this region of Galilee, this 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock on the, on the dial of looking around the Sea of Galilee. And so Jews came into Nazareth purposefully, as they do today. They're called you know, settlers today. And they, they go in and they kind of plant a community and try to get it to expand to get a beachhead of Judaism in a world that is not Jewish. And so that would have been the case with Nazareth. It was a small community, but one that was likely purposefully planted right there to be able to get a better beachhead of Jews and to replant the, uh, Israel in the land of Israel. Which means that these are people that have in mind a clear idea of the Messiah as a general. As a general who's going to usher in with righteousness and, and with the glory and the power of God, usher in a new reality and to throw off the mess of these oppressive Gentiles that are all about them. No love lost for the Gentiles at all. And the next portion of this verse, after saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, why was it so dear to these radical Nazarenes? Because the rest of that phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. They're like, yeah! That's what I'm talking about. Like, that's the stuff that, you know, that's, that's, that's like raw meat to that crowd. Like, bring it on. But he stops before that very spot and probably caused some tension that he stopped at that very spot. And then verse 20, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, perhaps even the person who was translating for him, and then he sat down. For us hearing this today, we think, oh, he's done. No, no, he's just beginning. All he did was read. Now that he sat down, now he's about to expound on what it is that he just read. Here comes the teaching from Jesus, and everyone else then sits down, and those that are really earnest about 
hearing from him, try to find their way to his feet. So you literally are at the rabbi's feet and you want to learn from, from him. And so if you can picture this now, then it's, it's Jesus now having put the scroll away, sitting down, those that are more earnest gathering at his feet, those that are perhaps a bit more cynical, arms folded, uh, stepping back, but still, still sitting now for this portion. And then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. As I said, there is tension in this room. Maybe this room, maybe not. But there's tension in this room being described here in Luke 4. In this synagogue, because of the way that Jesus on the fly edited the words of Isaiah for this particular crowd and their preconceived expectations of what God's deliverance was meant to look like through the Messiah. And as everyone is in rapt attention, waiting for what it is that he's going to say as he now, oh, he's sitting down. Here comes the teaching part. Let's see what he has to say about leaving out the middle of Isaiah 61.1. Let's see what he has to say about leaving out the end of Isaiah 62. The day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't he say that? Let's hear what he has to say. And then what does he say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Why boom? Because he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to do all of these things. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And now, there's a very controversial translation that comes next. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words. This is a really difficult one. And if you go through a lot of different translations, you'll see that it ends up in different places. And it's, it's very, very ambiguous of which way this one can go. The, the phrase in the Greek is, is best given to you in a literal sense as all had witness of him. Now, whether this means they witnessed for him or witnessed against him is ambiguous. I mean, it's pat ambiguous, type ambiguous right here with this phrase. And... Could it mean that, again, they, they were hearing him and, and, and uh, witnessing and giving evidence against him for what he said or for him? It is completely vague. However, the next phrase seems to clarify by the context because the next phrase says, and they began saying, uh, I'm sorry, and, and, and they began to say, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And that while he said these great things, aspirational, huge, trans, transcendent things that just came from this man who wandered into our synagogue, who wasn't, wasn't he the carpenter's son? This is like we, we were talking about this at, at uh, John Calpana had a, a, a amazing retirement ceremonies this week. But, but one fellow there was, was talking about the phrase and its great usefulness of bless his heart. Well, this is kind of like the crowd having a bless his heart moment with Jesus. You know, you know how that, that goes. Oh, he's claiming to be the Lord's anointed. Bless his heart, that carpenter's son. He made me an ottoman. And he's the anointed of the Lord? Oh, bless his heart. <laughs> but that, that does kind of capture the, the essence of, of what, what is going on here as, as we use that phrase, bless his heart. We're, we're not so kind when we use it. 
I had a list of them, but I'm, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Deb saying amen. <laughs> so be, be careful with this idea that they are all speaking well of him. It could be that they were speaking ill of him just as easily. Um, and that, that his words focused on grace rather than on vengeance may have actually caused them to recoil rather than to embrace. And then the question of, wait a minute, this is, this is that guy who was, you know, hammering out back, who, who suddenly is now our deliverer? Really? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. So now he's going to the go-to prophet for these folks, Elijah. Elijah's, you know, he's, he's like a Nazareth's hero. Because Elijah, when, when the, uh, the kind of the enemies of God come at him, Elijah's not afraid to bring a little fire. You know, and, and, and particularly whether it's you know, on, the, on, on the mountaintop of Mount Carmel, where he takes out all of the Baal worship and all of the Asherah pole worship at that moment, you know, with boom, consuming fire. Or even when the 50 henchmen come to arrest him. And, and he's like, boom. And, you know, and a ball of fire comes and takes out the 50. Another 50 come his way. Elijah, chilling. Boom. Ball of fire. 50 more. Gone. Whoa! What is this? And uh, he'll, he'll come to Elisha in a moment, too. You know, Elisha's not afraid to have a few bears come out and maul somebody for making jokes about baldness, by the way. It's all side note stuff. Let's get back to the text. There were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Any of whom? The widows of Israel. But to a widow in Zarephath. You hear Zarephath and you're like, is that the way you pronounce that? That's all you think, maybe at best. They hear Zarephath in that tension-filled room and the the other shoe falls. Just what I thought. This guy is talking about Gentiles. That's why he left out vengeance against the Gentiles. He is going to expand God's grace to the Gentiles. Nobody in the room is happy at this point in time. And the shoe fell with that word, Zarephath. Because that is in Sidon, which is Gentileville. Elijah was not sending any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What's, what's Jesus doing here? He's bringing two witnesses to bear. Because that's what the Jews demand. You want two witnesses? How about these two? Oh, Elijah and Elisha? And suddenly you're going to have to choose one way or another because there's no way at this point to say, you know, I like that Jesus. He's a, he's a good moral teacher. No, he's not giving the option. 
He never did. People want that option today. People may have wanted that option then, but he doesn't allow it to be the case. Either you are radically all in, or you've got to radically oppose what it is that's coming out of his mouth and what he is demanding morally from, from each and every one of us. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman. And he could have said Naaman the leper, as he used to refer to in, in the scriptures. But no, he refers to him as Naaman the Syrian. Nails on a chalkboard, if they had chalkboards at that time. All the people in the synagogue were furious. Big word, when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. That's how first century stoning worked, by the way, is you brought someone to a cliff, threw them down. If the fall didn't kill them, then you threw rocks on them. Apparently it's a lot easier to throw a rock from up high onto someone. Uh, And that was the intent of the crowd, thanks to Jesus sharing a little bit out of Isaiah 61. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I don't want to miss Jesus' intent because of all the distraction and fuss that's going on with this first century crowd. But at the heart of what Jesus is saying here is that I'm the Messiah and what God values and what I make clear is real faith. True faith in God. And the two examples that I'm going to bring to you today that show where God's favor rests, whether you be Jew or Gentile or something in between, where God's true favor rests is on people who exhibit real faith. And who's the first example that he shows? It's, I don't know if you can see that very well, but it's the widow, the widow of Zarephath. Her story is told in 1 Kings chapter 17. And it is... It is a remarkable story. A lot of us know the faith of the widow who comes to the temple in Matthew and has but two small copper coins. And Jesus is is at the temple observing as everybody comes up to the treasury box and gives their offering to the Lord. And they gave out of their wealth. And they all gave more than two small copper coins. They gave much more than this this widow gave. But she gave the two small copper coins. And why was Jesus amazed and astounded by her? Because it was all that she had to live on. Now, that's really inspiring because she did it voluntarily and she knew that nobody was watching. She just, she just did this because she had such great faith that it was in the eyes of God and she wanted to give what she had. Now, the widow of Zarephath has great faith as well, but in a different way. Because in her story... Elijah has just had a showdown with one of the worst kings of Israel ever, Ahab. Jezebel, that whole scene is through this period of time in in the Bible. And as a result, Elijah has a showdown and he rebukes Ahab and then realizes, I better get while the getting is good. And so off off he goes. And, And as he does... It's in the midst of this famine where he's praying that the skies will be shut. And so these skies are shut for three and a half years. Severe famine. But God sends ravens to him where he is by the, by the river uh, by, by which the ravens would feed him. And the ravens did. The ravens brought him food every morning and every night. And he had water from the stream. However, as the famine grew worse and worse, the stream dried up. And 
Uh, he was told by God that, you know, there's going to be no, nothing more for you here. And so what you need to do is head north out of Israel to Sidon, or Sidon, to the village of Zarephath, and there you will find a widow. And she has but a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour that's left. And she has a, a young boy as well. And go to her and tell her to make you bread from what she has left. And so Elijah does. And he obeys, he goes up. And this is a difficult story because Elijah finds the woman. And what does she do? She's gathering up little sticks so that she can make a fire and use this last little bit of oil and bread. And what she tells Elijah when he encounters her is, you know, you found me just at the time that I'm getting ready to, to cook the last of, this, of these ingredients that I have, this oil and this bread, because all I can figure is this is going to be the last meal for my son and me. We're going to eat this and then just simply prepare ourselves to die. And Elijah says really nothing about that. He just says to her, make me the bread from that oil and that flour. I'm a prophet of God. Now, not her God. She's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner. And as a matter of fact, it was the common idea at the time that Israel's God may have had some cool things going on, but it only worked inside of Israel's boundaries. In the next story with Naaman that, that uh, Jesus shares, Naaman, when he goes back to Syria, he asks one thing that he can bring back. Enough soil from Israel that could be carried on two donkeys. Why? Because he thinks, well, maybe if I have Israel land back in Syria, the miracles of God and the power of God will still apply. That's how deeply they, they've uh, identified a god to the, the nation that the, the god was supposedly over. So that's why the faith of this woman is going to be so great. Because she's outside of the boundaries of Israel. And God's prophet from Israel is telling her, trust in me. Make this last meal for me. And God will provide for you. And she does. And she has a faith that puts it all on the line. Not theoretically, not well if the opportunity ever presents itself, I'm willing to do this. She does it. And this is what Jesus, if he's to be our Messiah, is looking for exactly in every one of us. It is not that you have a hypothetical tucked in the back of your mind that if one day I need to put it all on the line for Jesus, I think that probably I could possibly do something like that. No, there's no room for the probablys, possiblys, hypotheticals. It's no. 100 times out of 100, I put it all on the line. Come on. I was so inspired by Jerome. Jerome still is a, a young Christian a little while back. Found a way to stay in this area because God had worked through this fellowship to help him come to know Jesus. And Jerome has three girls that are here. And, and he wanted desperately for them to be able to know Jesus as well. But at the same time, in order for him to stay here, he took a job that was a bit of a step down from what they needed in terms of their, their monthly nut and their budget. And then, not long after, he has life in this fellowship and he sees the changes going on, he gets a job offer that essentially bumps up his salary almost double, really. But it, but it takes him 
out of our area, out of our fellowship. Now, it puts him in another fellowship that, that might be pretty good, but he's not sure. He is sure of what he's got here. And he also knows that if he takes this job, he's not doing it for God. He's doing it for some perceived comfort that's going to make his life a bit easier. And at the end of the day, when he prayed about it, he came back and said, I'm going to say no to that job. Because what's more important to me right now is that I have every chance and my family has every chance and that I make my decisions for Jesus, not for any sort of comfort or gadget or budget that, that I, you know, in any way could start to trust more than trusting in Jesus. Praise God that we've got examples like that. But he's not the only one. There are so many of us, one after another after another, that really have decided that I am not going to theoretically trust in Jesus, but I'm going to really trust in Jesus. And my, my great test came when I first went into the ministry. I was, I was in Baltimore, actually, up with the Isaacs. They're, they're down visiting today. And we were kind of sending out and being uh, uh, you know, really inspired about going and preaching the word. And, and a lot of the folks from the Baltimore area were heading over to Detroit. And they had all asked if I would do so. Well, I'm a, I'm a single dad at the time and sharing custody. And my boys live, live in the D.C. area. And, and I'm being asked to go to Detroit. And I'm trying to make sense of this and thinking, I, 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 don't, see how, I don't see how this is going to work. But these are folks that were in the church that, that, that I respected. And they were, they were elders in some cases. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand just because of my, my own thinking here. I want to really trust that this is God's kingdom. That this is not just, you know, a nice church, but this is the kingdom of God. I'm not saying it's the only church, but my goodness, if we're not the kingdom of God, then, then, then what are we? What, what are we doing this all for? And if it is not God who arranges all parts of the body as he wishes, then what do I really believe? And so I say, you know, I, they're, they're asking me to go. I, I don't see any sense of this. These are my boys. Zach and Chase, like, how, how in the world am I going to make sense of this? But I remember going to the, to, to the leadership as a young intern and saying, I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered. You know what? If, if, if you think it's best and God's going to work it out for me with the boys, that this move to Detroit can work, then fair enough. Off I go. And um, it was another big issue too, by the way. Is I had just started dating Debbie at the time. And she was also down in the, in the D.C. area and I mean, those are all the big ones in life. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you just found the one. You know, that you, she's the one, and now I'm going to travel further away. And my boys, yeah. there's no need to know that they're the one, right? Yeah. And, and to have all that on the line. And, and I remember surrendering, saying, no, if, I, if I'm really going to trust in Jesus, if I really trust this is the body of Jesus, the body of Christ, and God arranges this, I'm going to go back and say, you know what, I'm surrendered. I'm surrendered to this. And I went back and I shared with the fellow those very sentiments. And he grabbed me and went for a walk with me and said, um, hey, you know what? I, I, you know, it's interesting to hear that you were praying all night last night because we had a long meeting last night. And I just got to apologize to you. Uh, the rest of the elders of the church came to me and said, what are you thinking? Taking him away from his girlfriend, from his sons? Like, how, how is that in any way the best possible plan? 
And I just want to apologize for you for even asking you to, to even go there. I'm amazed that you're you know, willing to, to do such a thing. But we've actually worked it out that you can move to actually Virginia, where you'd be closer to dad and closer to the boys, and all that sort of stuff will work out. And I came away like, whoo! Not, not that, well, I dodged a bullet there, but God is real. And anytime that we are willing to put ourselves on the line for God, he proves himself to be real. Now, yeah, maybe it's, you think, well, yeah, I can, I can do that for myself. Can you do it for your kids? Can you do it for your spouse? Can you do it for that relationship that's so particular in your life? This woman did it not just with her kids not being able to play soccer. She did this with her son facing death. And she put it all on the line. And we'll never know the great enthusiasm. There was never probably a day of greater enthusiasm in my life than when I saw God work like that right before my very eyes. But what do you want to have your life be? A life living by faith or a life where you strategically work it out by sight? And if Jesus is your Messiah, if he's your Lord, we got no choice. But he wants people to have this kind of a faith, this widow's faith. And then he gives one other example here. And it's Naaman. And sometimes this is harder because it happens all the time. And we don't often have, you know, kind of family crisis, faith moments in our life, but we often have moments of awkward interactions. And Naaman, when he comes down to Elisha, he first comes to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is overwhelmed that the commander of the superpower of Syria has come to his doorstep asking to be healed. He's like, how can I do this? Elisha hears of it and gives the, the king a bit of an out and says, hey, send, send Naaman, the commander of all the troops of Syria, down to my place. So Ahab's, uh, the, the, uh, the king is like, cool, cool. And he sends him on down. And Naaman shows up with multiple chariots, horses, and uh, spoils, really, that are brought to the doorstep of Elisha's humble house. And when he arrives, Elisha doesn't even go out to greet him. Now, normal protocol would have been that Elisha would have come out, bowed before him, said, let me make a great meal for you and for all your attendants. Come, let me be the hospitable host that I am meant to be by normal convention. And at the end of that meal, he would have then said to Naaman, what may your humble servant do for you? That's the way it was supposed to go down. That's the way it went down in Naaman's head as he traveled from the king to the great prophet's house. Instead, he gets to the great prophet's house awaiting for this show, and Elisha doesn't even go outside. He sends out a servant, and he says, hey, I'm a bit busy right now, but I'm going to tell you what to do, and it's going to work. Go down to the filthy Jordan muddy river, and it is. The Jordan is nothing inspiring to see. It is a muddy stream that leads from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. It's mud, mud, mud. Some places tiny, some places a little bit bigger, but in every place, nasty mud. And just go down into the Jordan and dip yourself seven times. And Naaman is furious. Like, what? What is that? I, I thought at least, even if he didn't prepare the meal, I thought at least he'd come out and do some sort of majestic hocus pocus and call on the Lord and wave his hand over my, over my uh, uh, leprosy and be able to heal it. And he's about to storm off 
But thankfully, a, a servant of God, a servant of his, who was a worshiper of God, says, hey, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. Well, why not if he tells you to do some simple thing? And Naaman humbles out. And that must have been a lot of humility because he is not saving face at all at this point. And he goes down to the Jordan and he does it and it says his skin becomes like a, like a little baby's skin. Wow. How amazing is that? And he comes out. And, you know, for us, Naaman is a great example of being able to humble yourself at a time that doesn't work out so well. I love Steve's communion where he talked about one of the more awkward moments that we all have. Confession. I mean, it's nothing but awkward from, from start to finish. But then at the finish, it's glorious, just like this story. Or even if you're right now trying to study the Bible and figure out your relationship with God, and maybe there are some things that are coming up as you study the Bible that don't fit exactly with some of the religious traditions that you had grown up with and seem to even fly in the face of that a bit. Well, what are you going to do? Walk away because it becomes awkward the more that you study the Word of God, the more clear it becomes because it is in conflict with your traditions? Or are you going to humble out and let the whole blessing of God really come your way? But as I look across this crowd, there's so many of you that came right up against that awkwardness and it looked as though, which way are you going to go? And you decide, you know what? I'm going to humble myself out. And I'm going to run right to the awkward. Faith that overcomes awkward challenges. And they're going to come to us at all times. Why? Because we always have pride. Just like Naaman had. And what Jesus is looking for in every one of us, the minute that our pride rears, the minute that we want to be defensive, the minute that we want to say, who are you to tell me? The minute that we think that we know better, the minute that we want to hide, the minute that we want to manage our reputation, the minute that any of that begins to happen, is then when, Jesus is really looking to us to see, am I Lord? Or am I just hypothetically Lord? Are you just saying Lord? Or am I really going to be Lord? Have you had any interactions right now that are a bit unresolved because they got awkward at some point? Are you avoiding them? Run to them. Run to them. Otherwise, it's like Naaman, going home awkward and nothing fantastic happens in his life. And there's too much on the line to let a little awkwardness steal what it is that Jesus has in store for you. So much in store for you. Just waiting. It's time for us all, as we hear these gracious words, as we understand this lightning bolt that comes before us, the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus. He has been anointed as the Messiah to set us free, to proclaim the good news, to open our eyes, to bless us at every turn. But it's not going to happen by, in any way, holding back. It would be completely in. A faith like the widow's. A faith like Naaman's. A depth of trust in Jesus fully. A depth of faith that doesn't allow our pride to get in the way. And when we do, We'll know, we'll know fully the power of Christ. This crowd did not. They took him, and this is a picture I actually took, at the brow of that hill. They brought him there to throw him down. 
And as he was there, let it be that we fall down ourselves before him, before the anointed one, before the Messiah, before the deliverer of every one of us. But it's not going to happen unless we really readjust our trust, really put away our pride, and really embrace Jesus on his own terms. Thank you. Thank you.